The word gospel translates to news that brings joy. But this isn't just any news. A gospel is news that changes a life forever. After being invaded and enslaved by Persia, Greece won two decisive battles at Marathon and Solnus. The Greeks sent out heralds, also called evangelists, to proclaim the good news to the cities. We have fought for you, we have won, and now you're no longer slaves, you're free. The reality is that we are all slaves, slaves to sin and slaves to death. We are slaves in need of good news. Enter Jesus, God's Son, fully God, fully man, bringing news that would change our lives forever. His news was this, I am the divine, come to you to do what you could not do for yourself. I will take what you deserve so you can have what I deserve. You have no idea how much it will cost me, but you also cannot imagine the depths of my love for you. It is a gift that I give freely, so repent. Repent from all the ways you've run from me and follow me. Follow me because I am the only way to eternal life. Follow me because I'm the savior you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything, yet I have humbled myself for you. Follow me because I died on a cross for you, because I'm your true love and your true life. This is my good news for you. This is my gospel that you have been saved by grace and that you are slaves no more. So church family, would you pray with me? Let's ask God to bless the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for these moments where we get to hear your voice and peer into who Jesus is. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more awesome. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. We ask you to move today in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few years back that there was a birthday party for one of our members at Olympia Fields Country Club. Anyone ever hear of Olympia Fields Country Club? Um, it was kind of how the other half lives. Uh, here's a picture of Olympia Fields Country Club. When I drove up that day, um, it was a, a gate there, and I had to be on the list in order to get into Olympia Fields. And I drove in, and, and I saw, you know, pool and tennis courts, and the gathering place for the birthday party was like this cathedral-looking thing. I, I don't know why they need a cathedral at a, a country club, but they, they have one at Olympia Fields. And I was just thinking, like, wow, what, what benefits of being a member there? Like, hashtag life goals, maybe someday, right? <laughs> you know? um, it's amazing. Well, not only are there benefits to being part of Olympia Fields, I want to talk a little bit about membership benefits. Uh, you ever see the benefits of joining a gym? You, you get to the gym, and then you have someone show you around, and there's the free weight section and the machines. There's the tanning beds, depending. There's the sauna there's the hydrotherapy machine massage that no one uses. There's the, you know, locker room, right? And if you can't relate to these two examples, perhaps the most common one you could possibly relate to is Costco. Are there any Costco members here? 
And uh, congratulations on your benefit. It's not going away. I just heard it in the news. The CEO is making sure you can get a dollar uh, soda and, and hot dog for like infinitum, so beating inflation. At this point, you're wondering, Pastor, where are you going with this? I'm glad you asked. Do you know there are benefits of being in Christ Jesus? There really, really are. And by the way, welcome if you're new to Christianity, new to this place. It's phenomenal. In fact, uh, the psalmist, one of my favorite psalms, says this. um, Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits. What I love is that whenever I come to worship, I can be in a funk, and then God can flip my funk simply by hearing of his love and his peace. That's a benefit. I can gather on Easter and remember that my God has conquered death. And if he conquered death, I don't have to be afraid of anything. I can remember the one who didn't spare his only son. How will he not continue to give us everything we need for body and for life and take care of us? Yes, there are benefits of being in Christ Jesus. And that's the premise of this series, Gospel Treasures. In the coming weeks, we're going to focus on the the treasure of possibility and destiny, of identity and family. And today, we're going to focus on the benefit of understanding our purpose. Now, understanding purpose, why we're on the planet, is, is really, really important. And there are a lot of theories of why we're here. I was doing some research, and the Dalai Lama said that uh, we are here uh, to be happy. Seems very American. I was reading another article from The Atlantic uh, about how to live a happy life um, and find significance, and they talked about purpose in this way, that it's the existence of goals and aims. This is the belief that you are alive in order to do something. Think of purpose as your personal mission statement, such as, the purpose of my life is to share the secrets of happiness, or I'm here to spread love abundantly. Do you have a personal mission statement? I've never asked you that. It's interesting because if you get your identification of purpose wrong, you can be very disillusioned. For example, let's say that you think the purpose on life is to have fun. You ever thought that? What happens when most of life isn't fun? (laughs) Feel disillusioned. What if you thought your purpose in life was to make really, really good food? And then you share your food with others and no one likes it. What happens to your sense of purpose then? And so what I love about being in Christ Jesus is that we are not wandering trying to figure out, like, why am I here? What do I do in this season? What is life about? No, God's called it out very clearly. You read the word, and and he has this general broad view statement. In 1 Corinthians, it says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so, if you're writing notes, our, our purpose in general is to give God glory. Now, I love how broad that is. If our purpose is to give God glory, I can find purpose in brushing my teeth. Why do I brush my teeth? Because I'm giving God glory by taking care of the teeth he gave me, and I hope they don't fall out. I can tie my shoes to the glory of God. Why do I tie my shoes to the glory of God? So I don't trip. So I honor the body that God gave me. So I'm tying my shoes to the glory of God. I can do almost anything to the glory of God when I remember that that's the purpose behind anything. Eating and drinking, a job or a hobby, what I do on the weekend, where I go to college, my purpose is to give God glory. 
So that's the general purpose, but I want to dive into a little bit more specific in our time together. And, and to do that, uh, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians, and I want to explore just a little bit of the context. And if you brought a Bible today, feel free to open to 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be in chapter 5. Um, and, and just before our section, I want to explain what Paul is talking about. It's one of my favorite thoughts that on earth, we are camping. Now, who loves camping here? Who loves glamping? That'd be more Troop Beverly Hills, anyone? That's, that's our family. We're Troop Beverly Hills. Um, and while I don't camp a lot, I do understand the premise. That tent was never meant to be there forever. That tent was made to be packed up, put away, and so I can move on and mosey on. Well, Paul said early in the chapter that right now, no matter where you live, no matter what's going on in your life, you are just going back to a tent. You'll get packed up, you'll move out, you'll move on, because your true home is in heaven. And if you consider just simple math, which is why I'm a pastor, I love simple math, eternity far outweighs 80 years, 90 years, 70 years, whatever it is. And so right now we're just camping. We know where our home is. And if that's the case, then it shapes our purpose for being on the planet. It shapes the mere moments of our lives and how we are to live. And so from that analogy into this next thought is where Paul goes. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, sometimes we stand in honor of God's word. Would you like to stand? Let's stand today. Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These are the beautiful words we get to dwell in. Before you sit down, can you say to someone next to you or out loud, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. All right, grab a seat, dig in. I am not a farmer, but I get the concepts of farming. And one of the things I get the concept of is, is using panels to direct a herd. You use them to direct cows to where they need to be or maybe to get a shot. I've seen that on TV, and I understand. More than farming, um, maybe some of you relate to Star Wars. And um, uh, this last uh, week was May 4th, and yes, may the 4th be with you. I don't know if you saw that. And, um, and so when I think of Star Wars, a very famous scene is this. Does anyone else, when, when they come to Star Wars, it's the trash compactor, right? And I bring up both panels and I bring up a trash compactor because both lead to a simple understanding that they are compelling you to go a certain way. Here a stall, 
hear the door if it were open, both kind of lock you in to go in a certain direction. The reason I bring that up is because the first words that we hear from, from the scripture are this, that Christ's love compels us. And I want you to put in your mind either of those pictures, whatever your preference is. That if you are in Christ Jesus, he has compelled you, he has put in the walls on both sides to do something. That's how specific our purpose is. That to do it correctly, you're like, no, I can't go out of this lane, I have to do this thing. The question is, what is that thing? Well, for us to understand that, we really have to take a look at the story of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we did that last week, if you were here, and, and Jesus Christ said, you know, when, when I came to this earth, I came to suffer and die. And, and looking at his life, we realize that most of his life, if not all of his life, was not lived for him. He came from heaven to earth, not for him, but for you. He had a ministry where he was persecuted and misunderstood, not for him, but for you. He was tempted in the desert, 40 days fasting, not for him, but for you. And yes, he bore a cross. The one who had no sin became sin for us, not for him, but for you. This is so beautifully pictured in Isaiah chapter 53 where it says, Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus Christ is our Savior, but he also gave us an example. And that was not to live for us, but to live for him. And so Paul, in view of everything Jesus did, writes these words. You know what you're compelled to do? The panels are coming in, the trash compactor. If you are in Christ and know the story, this is what you're compelled to do. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. It cannot be. You can't understand the story. You can't understand being in Christ. You no longer live for yourselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so God says very specifically, our purpose is not to live for ourselves, but to live for Jesus. In fact, that's how many things work. Marriage works because I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Jesus, and I'm married to a partner. Raising kids works because I'm not living for the kids. I'm living for Jesus and I show them God's love. My job works because I'm not living for my work. I'm living for Jesus and then I go to work. I don't do anything for myself. But how are you doing with that? Here's the rub, isn't it? I don't know if anyone would be completely honest and say, yeah, I'm doing that all the time, Pastor. You know, just living for everyone else. I never really think about myself. Would you really say that? How many of our kids, when you look at a career, are like, you know, I want to pick a career that's not about me. <laughs> Is that the discussion we're having in America? 
What about weekend plans? You know what I want to do this weekend? I want to do whatever I can do to empty myself and make it about Jesus and someone else. You know, when it comes to money, you know what I want to do? I just hope it's not about me. It's foreign, isn't it? And so it's like, how, how do we get here? We, we see how, how far we have to go. We see how selfish we are. And we know that the root of all sin, the root of every disobedience, do you know what it is? It is saying, no, I come first, you don't. The root of all sin is me saying, I want my way, not yours. And so then the only way past this I, I find is wrapping myself up in the story of Jesus Christ, going back to it again and again and again and again, coming to worship, reading my Bible, filling my mind with the author and the perfecter of the faith so that I can remember this life, it is not about me. It's about Jesus. And when we look at his life, what are the selfless acts that we see from him? We talked about some of them, but how about this picture? Some of you know the beautiful context surrounding this. This is Monday, Thursday. The very next day, he's going to die on the cross. And before he does, he washes his disciples' feet. He takes the lowliest form, the thing no one else wants to do, the lowliest servant. And the king of kings is picking up a towel and washing stinky feet. And this is the same king of kings who had shed his blood to wash our sins away. And that's what he's done. And I come to you primarily to tell you, your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. And it doesn't matter how selfish you've been. It doesn't matter if someone called you a narcissist along the way. What matters is the declaration of the gospel, the good news, that Jesus has overcome your sin, that Jesus has made you right with a holy God, that Jesus has a destiny in store for you, all because he loves you, he loves you, oh my goodness, does he love you even more than you know right now. And this is the gospel we proclaim, because Jesus knew his purpose. And so, yes, he is primarily our Savior. But after this, do you know what he said? He said, I've set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's our goal. And so we want to talk even more specifically on how not to live for ourselves, but to live for him and for others. You know, to do that, I want to uh, tell you about a, a mission journey we had, and some of you know this story, some of you are here from this story. It was a few years back that we went to the Ukraine, um, four of us in this church, and had a wonderful time. And uh, we were talking to the bishop of the Ukrainian Lutheran Church, and we were hearing um, his adversity because of Russian oppression. Now, the man we walked with had a family farm that had hundreds of acres. He would have been a rich man, but the Russians just stole it from him. Not only that, but then they forced him into the Russian army. And if you know World War II, how many Ukrainians lost their lives under the, the Russian authority? And that was his case. While we were there, they were not at war. Um, but there was no love lost between the Ukrainians and the Russians at the time. 
I, I remember he was, he was touring uh, us around uh, Kiev, the capital city, and, and there was this monument of a Russian and a Ukrainian uh, shaking hands, a, a very friendly monument, and he just called it propaganda because that doesn't exist. The Ukrainians just laugh at it. That, that's not the case. In fact, when we were in the south by Mikolaev and uh, Ivanka going to the village, um, they had uh, military exercises because they knew war could always be inevitable, and months after we were there, it happened. So when we consider Ukraine and Russia, today, how unlikely is peace? It's pretty unlikely. We, we pray for it. More than that, how unlikely would it be not only to have peace, but if Ukrainians and Russians were friendly, if they really got along like that statue led us to believe, like that, that, that'd be impossible. And I'd say it almost impossible from what I knew from the Bishop of Ukraine. I bring this up because Scripture says there's a different war going on spiritually. That war is not against Russians and Ukrainians. That war is between sinners and a holy God. And what is needed is reconciliation. And the idea of reconciliation is that two warring parties put down their war instruments, they meet in the middle, they shake hands in peace, and now they are one. And our God has said, while this may not happen, it has happened for you and me. Here's what it says in the book of Romans. For if while we were God's enemies, we were at war. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What we have is peace, reconciliation. The war is over. And why? Because of the death of Christ's son. And why does that matter? What is our purpose? He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Just as you saw in the video of those evangelists, those heralds, who, who went out and they said, the war is over, the war is over, we've won. Every one of us has that responsibility to anyone who right now feels at war. What is your purpose? It is to tell others the war is won. And this is what Christians do, right? This is what Christians do as parents, so when your, your child is, is, is in trouble because they bit the other child in kindergarten, your responsibility is, yes, to discipline and make consequences. They shouldn't bite other kids. But you know your chief responsibility? Is to tell them that the war is won. Is to tell them that even though you screwed up, God loves you and you're forgiven. It's a responsibility of every married couple. And in marriage, there's differences, right? And you're arguing over where to go, how to do things, all oh, this thing. And it's a responsibility when there's an argument and a disagreement for the other person to explain their side. But ultimately, the biggest responsibility to tell them the war is won. That I forgive you because Christ forgave me. And that's how marriage works. It's a responsibility of a neighbor who understands another neighbor who's going through a tough circumstance, maybe a death in the family, maybe a troubled kid, maybe a job loss, and they don't know Jesus Christ. 
And the person filled with all this anxiety and turmoil over the stressors of life. Yes, they need to know there's hope in this life, but you know what they ultimately need to know? That the war is won. That regardless of the chapter being written in our lives, we know how the story ends. Jesus has overcome. This is our responsibility. It's not just a pastor's responsibility. It's not just a church's responsibility. This is the responsibility of everyone who knows the story of Jesus Christ to go out and proclaim there is peace in the name of Jesus. Now, I was reminded of this through an Old Testament story. In the Old Testament, there was a young girl captured from Israel, and her master was Naaman, who was suffering with leprosy. And, and the young girl knew a prophet named Elisha. And she knew that if she would speak up, Elisha could heal Naaman. And you think of all the reasons she had to be quiet. She was captured. Why does she want to help her captors? What would he say? Maybe he would make fun of her. Why would I go to Israel? Just conquered it. And yet... What did she do? In 2 Kings, if only my master would see a prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She spoke up, and he went, and he was healed. You and I have a message that heals people. Jesus Christ has overcome. We have reasons as long as the day is to be quiet about that message. But friends, I remind you, we cannot do that. Too many people need healing. Too many people are still at war. Too many people still need to know that they are loved, they are forgiven, and God has a plan for them. But as we go out with this message of reconciliation, we also have a great responsibility, a, a kind of scary responsibility in some regards that I'll get to. And to talk about it, um, I remember going to Washington, D.C. and seeing uh, these various embassies. This is the embassy of Spain. And you think of the job of someone who's an ambassador at an embassy. Their job is not to give their personal point of view. It's not to say what they want. It is to simply represent the country that they came from. To the degree they represent the country they came from, the degree that they do their job as an ambassador well. The reason I bring this up is because we are ambassadors. Do you know that? If we have a message and we have to proclaim it, we are ambassadors. In fact, as a pastor, uh, some of you have read the Bible and know that my job's a little tougher. You know why? Some of you read that passage that says, those who teach will be judged more strictly. In fact, I remember at seminary taking this very seriously. I still take it very seriously. In the pastoral epistles about what a pastor should do, it said, watch your life and doctrine closely. And the word closely was kind of like a scalpel of a surgeon, like a razor's edge. You need to watch it closely because persevere in them, and if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. When you teach correctly, it has consequences. When you teach incorrectly, we call that heresy, it also has consequences. False teaching hurts people. There are people hurt today by false teaching. It's a serious deal. 
And so the job of an ambassador, I do my job well when I remember this is not about Dustin Bloomer. I just represent the King of Kings. I remember that I cannot, I must not give in to what culture wants, what itching ears want to hear. The degree that I'm faithful is the degree that I share faithfully his word in every age. And I will rise and fall not to a people, not to a culture, but to Jesus Christ who will judge me for how I talked. And he will do the same for you. Because you bear Christ's name. And by bearing Christ's name, you are an ambassador, whether you remember that all the time or not. You represent what it's like to be part of the kingdom. You represent the values of the kingdom. You represent the teachings of the master. And that's a serious job. I want to remind you, our purpose is to remember we are ambassadors. And so what this means for, for you and I is that when we go forward on behalf of Christ, we, we must take seriously how we are making our confession. We must take seriously our walk. And, and this might scare some of you from sharing the message of reconciliation. I'm not saying it should scare you because it's still your job. But it does mean you want to study up. You want to go to a pastor or a teacher who knows God's word. Like, is this correct? You want to be discerning in the messages that you hear, that you don't just take whatever you've heard from the chosen or anything else and then foist it on everyone else. You have to be a Berean Christian. A Berean Christian, you know what they did? When Paul preached, and Paul was a good preacher, they went back to Scripture and investigated, was Paul right? Because we don't know yet. And that is our job. In fact, your job in a worship environment because of the Bereans is not to discern a sermon based on how I felt it hit me. Your litmus test for every sermon is simply this. Was it faithful to the word of God? And if so, that's a good sermon. That's the job of an ambassador. We have no luxury telling what I feel and what I want and my preference and my opinion, we have the responsibility to be faithful and true to the King of Kings because the world needs to know the war is over. And they need to know all of God's truth because the truth of God sets captives free just as false teaching enslaves May you know your purpose for being on the planet. You are to faithfully proclaim this message. You are to be an ambassador, and by doing so, give God glory. May he so empower you to do that. Amen. And the peace of God which transcends our understanding, may it guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, at this time, we just encourage one another that we are connected in the Christian faith. And uh, today we confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.